You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning. I'd like to invite you to remain standing as we read God's Word. This morning our text is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, starting with verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat, went into the region of Magadan. Church, this is God's word to us this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In our time in the Gospel of Matthew, we have been learning how Matthew, after his introduction, he strategically structures his account of Jesus' life and ministry, not in strict chronological order. We've seen that. But what he does, he creates defined teaching units, five of them, that mirror the Pentateuch. 
the five books of Moses. And he does this for the chief reason of revealing to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies that he, in fact, is the Messiah. And doing so, Matthew makes known to us Jesus' character and his nature, that he is God with us. And he makes known to us his mission, that he came to save his people from their sins. Now, Matthew, he certainly makes the case that Jesus is the promised Messiah, right from the get-go. We remember in chapter 1, he introduces Jesus as the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the Jewish, Jewish lineage is unmistakable as Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham to David to the time of his birth. But here in chapter 15, we're at the point in Matthew's gospel where opposition to Jesus is becoming more and more pronounced. We saw the confrontation with the Pharisees, Pharisees last week and how they and the scribes were on a mission to disprove and to discredit Jesus as the Messiah. And as we'll see later, their ultimate goal to preserve their power will be accomplished by having plotted Jesus to be killed. It's in this swirl of growing popularity with mass healings and feedings on the one hand and the increasing opposition on the other that Jesus, much like when we heard during John the Baptist's death, he wants to get away. In his humanness, Jesus is seeking a break, a respite. And so we come to this point in Matthew's gospel. And what follows is the first of two movements in our passage. And this one's called a most unusual exchange. Look with me at chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. By using the word withdrew, it's clear that Jesus intended to get away. And we have this parallel account in Mark's gospel. And what he says that he says that Jesus and his disciples, they did some recon and they found a house available for their mini retreat, a sort of first century Airbnb. (laughs) But it's where he goes and who he meets seemingly unintentionally. That should catch our attention. The district of Tyre and Sidon wasn't necessarily the cities that he visited, but it was the region of the Gentiles. Now the word Gentile, to us, it doesn't mean much in this current day, and it doesn't seem to carry the weight it did then, especially in light of the presence of the Jewish Messiah. You see, in Hebrew culture, Gentiles were considered unclean. Canaanites specifically, they were the historic mortal enemies of Israel. There's long-standing biblical and archaeological evidence of their cultural and idolatrous practices. And it's not just that they were different. This is not a matter of one culture against another. The Canaanites were perverted. They had a culture of death. And their practices and desires knew no bounds, including age. 
any connection to them would be considered an open door to defilement. And the Israelites would risk doing that, as the Lord says in Deuteronomy, all their abominable practices for their gods. And so, leaving them to survive so they can infect the rest of humanity would be a sin against the Lord. So why would Jesus want to go there? Why, wouldn't he be in violation of Israel's laws and practices? And so compromise his mission. To answer that, let's look closely at this most unusual exchange between the Jewish Messiah and the so-called mortal and cultural enemy. Verse 21 Then Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region. Let's pause there again. Knowing Matthew's intended Jewish audience, he's revealing what Jesus wants us to see all along. You remember his rebuttal to the Pharisees and the scribes about being ceremonially unclean. That our defilement, Jesus said, comes not from contact with our supposed enemy or things from outside of us but from what comes from our hearts he takes what he taught about that truth and he shows us that the feeble commandments of the Pharisees are powerless to bring us to God but sadly they imprison those who attempt to follow them and Matthew using the word behold he wants us to take note and understand what he is about to describe to us. So first, we're going to look again at who this woman is. From the beginning of this encounter, in the eyes of a Jew, especially from a Jewish leader, she already has three strikes against her. First, she's a Gentile through and through. She's a Canaanite by ethnicity. And though this time, mixed with generations of different tribes and people groups, She's of mixed heritage. But Mark describes her as a Syrophoenician with Greek, that is, Gentile influences. And she's from a region, Tyre and Sidon, that would trade with the rest of the world. The region is infected, not just only the paganism of which it was rampant with, but with arrogance. An arrogance that is born out of its historic periods of affluence with its many trade partners. The third strike against her, she's a woman. Now that's an unfair and unsensible to our 21st century ears, but that was a cultural reality back then. And I would submit that even today, even within the culture of some, not all, but some in the church, and sadly much in our current culture of fluidity, things are not so different today. Now with all of this, it's strange how this Canaanite woman even approaches Jesus. And even more strange is what she says. If anything, she sounds like she's a devout Jew. She's a genuine believer. Look at verse 22. She came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now this was a cry that one would expect from those who grew up hearing scriptures taught by birth. This is a cry from someone who is hearing God's law and about his holiness to hearing of God's grace 
and their deliverance from Egypt and the preservation of Israel throughout the centuries. This was someone who seems to know the need for humility for a broken and a contrite heart. This Canaanite woman cries out, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. We don't know for sure how this happened. But what we do know is that she was desperate. She was desperate. And it was more than her need for help that was driving her. It was her belief in the only one who could. More than her need for help that was driving her. It was her belief in the only one who actually could help her. Now what comes next is that first reading is fairly puzzling. It seems inconsistent with what we've seen of Jesus, with him being moved with compassion to feed thousands and those who were desperate for healing and help for all kinds. If you take a look, At verse 22 again, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Verse 23, But he did not answer her a word. At this point, you would expect her, filled with this this desperate hope to just now deflate. His silence in the moment could have been the death knell to her anguished longing to see and have her daughter delivered from this demon. But it did not. The disciples, on the other hand, in many ways true to form, not having a full grasp this side of the resurrection of what was going on, they seemed to make matters worse. If we take a look at the second half of verse 23, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And it's in their complaint, however, that Matthew reveals the Canaanite woman's hope. That phrase, crying out, in the original language, is a phrase that shows her pleas for help are continuing, despite Jesus' silence. She's persistent. One translation says, she keeps shouting behind us. This Canaanite woman is not giving up. And so we see Jesus' first response is to the woman, which is one of silence. And the second response of Jesus, given the context, is actually to the disciples in their request to have him send the woman away. In verse 24, he answered, Jesus does, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now again, at first reading, some would say that this is exclusionary. And in a strict sense, it's intended to be. As we grow in our understanding of who God is, that he is a faithful, covenant-keeping God, by nature, he is true to his word. If we are faithless, he remains faithful still, for he cannot deny himself. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, 
or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God, who has covenanted with Israel and promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations, he will do what he says. Paul says the same thing in Romans. God will fulfill his promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. In doing so, this is the promise God put into action. He sent the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, to make this happen. Jesus himself says, if you remember in chapter 10 of Matthew, as he sends out the apostles, he tells them, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is in fact fulfilling the promise of God. And in response to the ones he did send out back in chapter 10, he was letting the disciples know that he was continuing to do so. At the same time, at the same time, Jesus is giving the Canaanite woman an opportunity to reveal her faith. This signals a shift in Matthew that he has intended all along in structuring the gospel the way that he did. You remember in the introduction, Matthew revealed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to come as the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David. And Jesus is also, if you remember in Genesis, he is the promised seed of the woman, Eve. And God's promise for deliverance, though it comes through his chosen people, Israel, and fulfilled in the true Israel, his son Jesus, it was intended all along to be for the nations. Abraham was to be the father of many nations. So in other words, the Gentiles too who believe by faith are also lost sheep. And they're soon to become children of promise. Yes. You recall when Jesus began his ministry, chapter 4 of Matthew. Before he goes out on the Sermon on the Mount, it says, quoting Isaiah, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a great light has dawned. Who's them? In that same passage, the land, them is the land of Zebulun. It's the land of Naphtali. It's the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the region of Tyre inside it. And that's what's happening now in our passage this morning. So our story continues. And I want us to see something now that is vital. It's vital for us this morning. After Jesus responds to his disciples in verse 24, we hear what are the most desperate words that anyone can say. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I've lived life long enough to know that life does not always go as planned. 
life deals some pretty heavy blows. And some of us have gotten the wind knocked out of us more than once. Suffering is real. And some of us, including myself, we never thought we could experience this kind of pain. Never. And for some, the wounds go even deeper. It's like, like the Canaanite woman, some of us have our children who are suffering. So when we pray to our Heavenly Father, we don't always need to articulate with words. There are times when there are no words. But the Spirit hears and He knows the, gro he knows the groans of our hearts. The Spirit knows. And if there are words, sometimes the only words you can utter is, Lord, help me. Yeah. Lord, help me. And in the ears of our Savior, because they are met with his compassion, Lord, help me, are some of the most beautiful words spoken because they are words of faith they are words of faith in him in him Lord help me Hebrews 11 6 hear the word of God and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him Lord, help me. In verse 26, Jesus gives his third answer. He's testing her faith. Look at verse 26 with me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It would have been natural to assume that Jesus would have at the very least acquiesced to her request in that moment. What seems to make it worse is that Jesus seems to be adding salt to her wound of being a Gentile by calling her a dog. But calling her or any Gentile dog in this particular case is not typical. It's not a typical title given to Gentiles as it normally would like wild dogs roaming as scavengers in the streets. The word dog here in the Greek is actually a diminutive form, and it's used to describe a household pet, sort of like a lap dog. But it's actually given as a term of affection because the household pet is part of the household. And in teaching the same story in Mark's gospel, with Jesus' response, Ligon Duncan says this, that he's actually, Jesus has actually given this woman an opportunity to persist in her asking, 
to strengthen her faith. And this woman has an insight that was rare, no doubt prompted by the Spirit. And as we'll see, it was commendable. And here's why. In responding to Jesus, the woman, thank you. In responding to Jesus, the woman rose to the occasion and she understood what grace was. Don't miss this. She understood what grace was. She knew the power of God's grace was what she needed, that even a crumb of grace from the hand of the Lord meant everything to her. She said in verse 27, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't dispute what Jesus says. In fact, she agrees with him, knowing that the Jews have priority, but Gentiles too can be fed at the same time. In other words, even a residual blessing is sufficient. That's the power of God's grace. And because this woman knew that God is good, that he is who he said he is, she was willing to receive anything from him. And Jesus, full of mercy and grace and abounding in steadfast love in her most dire need and what she desired most, he gave. He gave. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The faith of a Canaanite woman, even with the satisfaction from the crumbs that fall from the master's table, the Lord provides exactly what she needed. And in doing so, he was foreshadowing what was to come both in the redemption of Israel for all those who believe and for the Gentiles. So if you remember, along with a centurion's similar commendation of faith by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, and the Canaanites, uh, Canaanite woman's faith here in this passage, as I mentioned, Matthew is signaling for us a time. Commentator R.T. France says this, that the true Israel will transcend the boundaries of culture and nationality, end quote. And this is just as God has intended, exactly as God has intended. So Matthew, he continues this developing shift, and he moves on to a larger scale in the following verses. This is the second of our two movements. This movement is called healing and provision for the Gentiles. And we see here the principle of God's grace at work through his ministering to the greater Gentile population. And like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he began his ministry to Israel, Jesus goes up on the mountain and he sits down. And he says in verse 30, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet. And he healed them. He healed them so that the crowd wondered. 
And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seen. And although he had walked along the Sea of Galilee to get to his mountain, to this particular mountain, Matthew makes it clear that this episode of mass healing was specifically for the Gentiles. Coupled with the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter, Jesus was demonstrating this, that it was the pride of self-righteousness and the teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men that keeps one from God, even if one was of the household of Israel. Whereas the simple childlike faith, like those bringing their sick, their blind, the crippled, the lame, and the deaf, even if they are Gentiles, unclean and all, they will be rewarded. So what about us? What prevents us from seeing God for who He is and what He has done? Could it be that our modern, sophisticated time, our needs can be met by modern technology so we don't really need to be filled with wonder at what God does? This is Orange County. Are we that self-sufficient? Maybe we forget that regardless of what advances we benefit from, our needs are ultimately spiritual. Jesus himself says to us, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Even as believers, born again of the Holy Spirit, we need to grow in humility. We need to grow in our wonder of what God has done because he gave us his son. New life in Jesus. Think about this church. New life in Jesus. Life. True life in Jesus. We now have fellowship with our Holy Father. We have koinonia. All things in common with our Heavenly Father because of what Christ has done. Because of what the Father has done in giving Jesus himself punishment as punishment for our sins. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in every believer who calls on Jesus. And we have the very Spirit of God dwelling in us. Wonder. Wonder. Don't ever stop being filled with wonder at what God has done. Great things He has done. Now in our passage, the Gentiles, they were healed physically. And they knew who to glorify. Not their pagan gods, but the God of Israel. Verse 31, so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And listen, church, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, as only God can heal physically, only God can heal spiritually. 
And that's our ultimate need. True to the mission of Jesus, he came to save his people from their sins. And the life we now live in Christ, we live by faith in the one who gave himself and loved us. As Paul says to the church in Corinth, so the Holy Spirit says to us this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 4. Notice the triune God at work. For while we are still in this tent, that is our bodies, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as his guarantee. So we are of always, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And while we, Jesus came to seek and to save us who are lost, to give us ultimate healing by causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our future, future bodily resurrection, church, good news, he cares for us here and now. He cares for our needs. And he says as much in the Sermon on the Mount that our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And we see that front and center. After three days of healing in our passage, healing three days of that as well, no doubt, teaching, verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. In verse 37, I love this. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Now if this sounds familiar, we just read this in chapter 14. Jesus performing the same miracle for 5,000. So why does Jesus perform the same miracle and why does Matthew include it in his record? There are several differences. As much as the pattern is the same, there are several differences and it's very significant for a number of specific reasons. But I want to highlight one for us this morning. It's what Jesus says right before he multiplies the bread and the fish. In chapter 14, he says a blessing. He says a blessing before he broke the bread. In this miracle, chapter 15, it happens when Jesus, having given thanks, 
he breaks the bread and the fish. So what's the significance? These two words, blessing and giving thanks, these are the very same words that Jesus spoke at the Last Supper. In breaking the bread, he says a blessing. And in giving the cup, he gives thanks. Church, it was through the breaking of the bread in both miracles and in the Last Supper that points to the very reason why Jesus came. He says a blessing because at the cross, he came to be broken so that we may be made whole. He gave thanks for the cup. He gave thanks for the cup because he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath that was due us so that we didn't have to. Jesus took our place and he drank the cup of the Holy Father's wrath for my sin and yours. So question for us this morning. From the prophet Isaiah, you heard these words this morning in our welcome. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy? Work, career, status and recognition, power, relationships. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The crumbs, the crumbs so happily and willingly received by the Canaanite woman, it points to the amazing grace of the Father in giving us His Son. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things? And Paul expands on this otherworldly grace. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Church, listen to this. The riches of His grace, we are the recipients of that. And He doesn't just dole it out in measure. He lavished it upon us. That word lavished in the Greek, it means an over-excess in abundance. An over-excess in abundance in church. That's the same word used in the feeding of the 4,000 to describe the leftovers in feeding the Gentiles. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that saves. And that's the grace that the Canaanite woman came to believe in. And that's the grace so freely offered to us in Christ. We're not given crumbs. 
We're given the bread of life, Christ himself. Church, the historical account that we just read, Matthew's Gospel, it's the story of the Canaanite woman, the healing and the feeding of the 4,000. That's our history. That's our history. And for those who have yet to believe, it can be yours as well. Romans chapter 10. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, that is Gentiles. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Like the Canaanite woman, calling on the name of the Lord can be as simple as, Lord, help me. Yeah. Call on his name. Let's pray. Father, you are love, and you alone can give life. And you have done this in giving us your son, Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, help us to receive your gospel by faith. For it is the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we pray this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.